So the Bible readings tonight are from page 8, and the first reading is from Isaiah chapter 25. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And our second reading from John chapter 11. Now a man named Lazarus was ill. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay ill, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is ill. When he heard this, Jesus said, this illness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the son of God who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have had kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odour, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth, a cloth round his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. The chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for, the, for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Is there any chance I can lift this up a little bit? Don't need to. I'll do whatever Andy tells me. Um, Welcome, and uh, live streamers, I think there's like 15 of you on there, so great to have you here. You probably won't see the screen above, but it's just quotes and the outline, and those quotes and the outline are both on the online uh, order of service if you want to get it. Uh, you'll be able to follow there pretty easily. What a remarkable text, a text that leans forward into the resurrection of Jesus, and indeed the resurrection of Jesus itself leans forward into our own. So why don't we pray as we discuss this text. I like to think of this text as holy ground. Let's pray. Tonight, Father, we pray with the man to whom Jesus said, everything is possible for the one who believes. So we pray with him. We pray his words, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Challenge then our unbelieving hearts in this matter, in the matter of life and death. We pray this for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. So before we get into it, four preliminary remarks. 
First, uh, a trigger warning for those who grieve or who have grieved. Uh, this, this evening we draw close to death. We're going to the tomb of Lazarus. Second, uh, for those who stay, there's good news. Tonight we hear of hope after death. Uh, death we know swallows us all, but today we're going to hear about death itself being swallowed up. Third remark, many of us don't even want to look at the topic, rather we want to put death from our minds. 16th century reformer John Calvin wrote this on blocking death from our minds. He wrote, we undertake all things as though we were establishing immortality for ourselves on earth. We just go on and on and on, thinking it'll go on and on and on. If we see a dead body, we may philosophize briefly about the fleeting nature of life, but the moment we turn away from the body, the thought of our own perpetuity remains fixed in our minds. Tonight, don't turn away. Fourth, I want to give forewarning of a miracle that could take place tonight. Not the miracle of resurrection, although I believe that, but rather the miracle of believing against all hope. With all the education we have in our room, with all the knowledge of science, of believing in life. And maybe we'll believe because we can no longer tolerate the alternative, that the only way is down, baby. The only way is demise or decay or destruction. The disciples said to Jesus, to whom shall we go? You've got the words of life. What's the alternative? Verse 38, page 10. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odour. In the King James Version, it's, Lord, he stinketh. He's been there four days. Then Jesus said, verse 40, very importantly, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God. You've got to believe, and if you do, you'll see the glory of God. So they took away the stone. Jesus prayed. Then he called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. What do you do with that? The dead man came out. His hands and his feet wrapped in strips of linen. Is he hopping? And a cloth ran his face, and Jesus said to them, take off the grey grave clothes and let him go. Let him live. It is not uncommon in literature to address death, for those of you with a classical education, in the vocative case, oh death. I'll give you an example. John Donne said, O death, be not proud. Though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. You're not so proud. You're not so mighty. You're not so dreadful, death, says Donne. Hosea 13, in the same vein, addresses and indeed taunts death. Well, God says, I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? Doesn't exist. 
Paul quotes Hosea in the famous passage in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Death, the saying will become true, death has been swallowed up in victory. There are movements, both modern and ancient, to see death as a friend or a friendly door to another life, a peaceful slipping to something better. Not so in Scripture. Death in Scripture is always a tragedy, not just untimely deaths or young deaths. It's always a tragedy. Death is an enemy in Scripture connected deeply to sin and to judgment and to exile and has its origins in the Garden of Eden. It is, we might say, the last enemy. The last enemy, we're told, that shall be destroyed is death. Now, even J.K. Rowling wrote this word, Katrina, in Harry Potter, Deathly Hallows, right? She put this word on Harry Potter's parents' gravestone. I quote, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And then she writes, Harry read the word slowly as though he would only have one chance to read them, to take in their meaning. And he read the last of them aloud, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, Harry doesn't get it. He thinks, isn't the death of death the Death Eaters business, but he's going to have to read the words slowly. And we should read the words slowly too. One chance to take in their meaning. We'll come back in the end to why it's the last enemy, but it is the enemy in the sense that death opposes us, it seeks to rob us life, it seeks to kill us. Death seeks our demise, our destruction, and if you've been with somebody in those moments, that death just keeps on going until it wins. And it always wins, 100%. We might say, death, be proud. Some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art so. You are mighty and dreadful. See, the only thing that humans haven't conquered is death. In fact, every horror film, by the way, is built on the premise that the thing coming our way is unstoppable. But every horror film, at least the ones that want to make money, has human beings, in the end, destroying the alien or stopping the disaster. But not true in this life, in the real world you live in. Hollywood is telling what, at least with our eyes, appears to be a lie. I do wonder whether Hollywood, in terms of all the stories that are given, have a leaning into or a yearning into the gospel, and that's why those stories are told. C.S. Lewis is great and all that stuff. Why the myths are true. Not in the, in the, fulfilled in the non-myth of Jesus Christ just leaning into the hope of the gospel. But the only thing that conquers every person is death, so no wonder Jesus wept. 
We continue tonight our Lent series, the verbs of discipleship in John's Gospel, and you can see us ticking them off in front of the zine. The verb today is to believe. And it's all through our text today and all throughout John's Gospel. Give it an example. Verse 15, Jesus says, For your sake I'm glad I was not there when Lazarus died, so that you may believe. Verse 25, Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives by believing in me, they live that way, will never die. Verse 42, I've said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And in verse 45, therefore many of the Jews saw what Jesus did and they believed in him. Even at the end of our text, the enemies of Jesus say in verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. It's why followers of Jesus are called believers. I'm happy to wear that tag, rather than cynics. And this is consistent with the theme and some of the last words of John's gospel. All this is written, including John 11, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So I want to get at this large text by asking and answering three questions. Firstly, why did Jesus wait? Verses 1 to 16. Why did he weep? In verses 17 to 37. And then how did Jesus win over death? In verses 38 to 53. Why did he wait? Why did he weep? How does he win? So why does Jesus wait? He waits. He's not far away, by the way. He's only a couple of miles away. Him waiting is one of the keys to the chapter and, and um, helps us with the verb to believe because him waiting is part of the tension that gets resolved. So why did he wait? In verse 1, we're introduced to Lazarus, his family, his town, and his problem. Lazarus was ill. Not dead yet. So what's up with verse 5? Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two more days. Those two verses don't go together. He loved them, so he stayed. Who does that? The narrator tells us, he puts the two verses together, his love for them requires that he waits because they're in for a treat despite the fact that they experience pain in the meantime now why and the answer is for you this is for you this happened for you they experienced this pain for you for, for us who believe you'll see in a moment we find out over and over again that the sisters and the mourners blame lazarus uh, jesus for lazarus's death not uncommon Example, in verse 21, Martha says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. He could have handled the sickness. Mary says the same thing in verse 32. They've been talking and they've been sharing with the whole town. Verse 37, some of them said, if, uh, you know, could not the one who opened the eyes of the blind man, which is in chapter 9, have kept this man from dying? They reason, illness is an enemy too. Jesus can handle that enemy, but not the last enemy. He can't do anything about death. Now, Jesus knows what's going to happen. He knows it from the beginning. 
He says it in verse 11, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to rouse him. It's not hard to rouse someone from the sleep, most people. They take him literally. You know, if he's fallen asleep, he'll get, you know, that's the way to get better. They take him literally like the woman at the well with water, like the disciples with bread. So verse 14, he told them plainly, Lazarus has not fallen asleep. He's dead, that's what I'm saying. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. So let us now go to him. So why wait? And the answer is, so you may believe. Because you'll see something. By the way, somebody else will see a resurrection and believe. His name was Thomas. Seeing and believing will be placed together for Thomas. But Jesus will say to Thomas and therefore to us, blessed the one who has not seen or sees through the testimony of others and believes. Because when we read this passage, we see the glory of God. Verse 4, Jesus says, this illness will not end in death. Not really. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. I stayed back so that God would be glorified. You think, shouldn't he meet the need immediately? Actually, he's going for the glory of God. That's why he says in verse 40, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So why does he wait? So you and I would, through the testimony of these witnesses, see the glory of God and believe. Question number one. Question number two. Of course, verse 35 says Jesus wept. Probably the shortest verse in the Bible and one of the most famous. Jesus wept. Why did Jesus weep? Well, in verses 17 to 37, you get a glimpse into God's good heart. Some of you like are nervous about believing because maybe you've been hurt by people in churches uh, and you're thinking, am I safe? Verses 13 to 37, you might get a glimpse into the heart of a God who weeps with you. Verse 17, on Jesus' late arrival, it turns out Lazarus has been dead for four days. Jesus knows it. Mary and Martha were hoping for a miracle while he was alive, but now that Lazarus is dead, their hopes have been dashed. The same thing will happen to the disciples at the foot of the cross. Martha rushes out to meet him in verse 22 and scolds him, you should have been here. Uh, but she has faith, even, though, even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus tells Martha what most good Jews believed about a time to come, your brother will rise again, verse 23, which is a bit like saying, you'll be reunited with your loved one one day. And Martha says in verse 24, and I think she's resigned to it, um, I know that he'll rise again at the resurrection at the last day. Who does not know these things? We're Jewish. It's a bit like saying, I know I'll see him again one day, but perhaps it's cold comfort now. But Jesus <laughs> makes the whole thing very immediate. That thing you're hoping for, that thing you think is a long way off, that hope you hope is real, I am that hope. 
I'm here. I am that hope. Ego Amy in the Greek, which is the name of God. In Exodus, Jesus says, I am here and elsewhere. I am the resurrection. I am the life. I embodiment, embody it. You want to see hope? You're looking at it. You're looking at him. I'll say it again. You want to see hope? You're looking at him. Hope is a person. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. 100% you will. And whoever lives by believing in me, whoever lives by believing in me, will never die. Not ultimately. Do you believe this? Which is the challenge of the chapter. Now she's not sure what to believe about the resurrection. To whom shall we go? So she says, verse 27, I believe that you're the Messiah. Not sure what you're saying, but I believe that you're the Messiah, which is a profound insight. You're the Son of God, the King, who is to come into the world, always promised. So she sides with Jesus, even though she doesn't know what he means, like lots of us. That's the exchange with Martha. The exchange with Mary from verse 28 follows the same path. Comforters, no hope or little hope. Mary challenging Jesus on his tardiness. But she's crying. She's crying. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Jesus shows you the heart of his Father. God is deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Verse 35, Jesus wept. God wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Why did he weep? The answer is he loved him. And more is actually contained or embedded into the word that we translate deeply moved. In the original language, the word connotes strong emotion. It's hard to know what to do with the etymology of words, and you've got to be careful with this, but the same word is used for war horses rearing up before charging into battle. Deeply oofed. They're moving like this. Let me at it. Jesus can't stand what's happening. He hates it. He knows that death is an enemy. He knows it's the last enemy. Tearing people apart. And he loves his friends. And so he hates death. So deeply moved again, he comes to the tomb. Verse 40, did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? He takes away the stone. Take away the stone, he says. What about the stink? He prays to his father. I say this so that people around may believe he calls out in a loud voice Lazarus come out and the dead man came out so why did he weep one author said this he cried he knew Lazarus was dead before he got the news but still he cried he wasn't surprised he knew Lazarus would be alive again in moments but still he cried he wept because knowing the end of the story doesn't mean you can't cry at the sad parts. Who here doesn't think that's genius? 
So don't sugarcoat death, don't deny it, feel it, hate it, and let it draw you to the one who has victory over it. We say death swallows humans. What about we find the human who swallowed up death? Let it cause in you faith. Jesus had a word, Lazarus come out, and because of his word, he was raised from the dead. It happened so that you may believe. Jesus said it, I am the resurrection and the life. You're looking at the resurrection, you're looking at the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die 100%, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? So lastly then, how did Jesus win? And I mean beyond this Lazarus moment which leans forward to the resurrection and the resurrection leans forward to our own. How does the raising of Lazarus point to a future victory? Now remember J.K. Rowling, Harry Potter, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Harry read the words slowly as though he would have only one chance to take in their meaning and he read the last of them aloud. Now is our one chance to take in their meaning. Actually, we'll do it again on Easter, Easter Day. And he read them out aloud. How did death get destroyed? How did death get defeated or swallowed, not just for Lazarus, but for the, all of us who believe? How did the horror end? Because there are lots of, lots of enemies in life. So how did the last one to be dealt with, lose. And the answer is, death is not anyone's or everyone's last enemy, although it is. In 1 Corinthians 15, death is Christ's last enemy after he has conquered everything else as Lord and Messiah, and he wins. Because if he doesn't win, by the way, then there's something else stronger and you may as well worship death. Or deny it all, pushing it away. John Calvin style. The last enemy is Christ's last enemy, and he will win after he has won or ruled over everything else. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 15, for as in Adam all die, 100%, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those, those who belong to him, those who believe. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet as Christ. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. We read the words slowly as though we have only one chance to take in their meaning. His last enemy is death. But to defeat the final enemy, his last enemy, Jesus had to face another tomb. This time not Lazarus's tomb, but his own, in order to defeat death and bring us with him so that you and I will live. So, are we serious about this? What with all our education? And across the five congregations of the parish of Churchill, I shudder to think how much education is in the room. Gobsmacked by it. And we know our science. 
And so we think, should I believe only with my eyes? Is this just wishful thinking? Right? Scientists give eulogies and say all sorts of stuff. Is it like a magic elixir that we peddle to make money? No, I take great comfort in the fact that this story is part of a larger, longer, deeper story of the whole Bible over time, the beginning of the Garden of Eden, works its way through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus says, I am not the God of the dead, but of the living, and especially with the promises made in exile. Jesus has this interaction with certain religious leaders who doubted the resurrection, and he said this, he said, you are in error because... You do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. It's one of those words that work better in the King James Version. Jesus said to them, you are in error. Ye know not the scriptures nor the power of God. You don't know what God has said from the beginning in scripture, and you don't know that God can do it. The scriptures are the story of a promise of death defeated. An example of that is Isaiah 25, first reading. On this mountain, which is Mount Zion, just outside of the city of Jerusalem, God will destroy the shroud that enfolds all the peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. God will swallow up death forever. Amen? How does Jesus swallow up death? Well, the passage sort of ends in verses 47 to 53 by telling us the leaders in Israel get wind of Lazarus's untimely life. And uh, they say in verse 47, what are we accomplishing? Of course, many politicians have said such things many times throughout history. What are we accomplishing? I think of the Western Australian liberals today. Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him because he's got the answer that every, the, to the question that everybody's asking or will ask. They'll all believe in him and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. By the way, they came in 70 AD and took away the temple and the nation. But they say, if we don't kill Jesus, our nation will die. But if we do kill him, others will live which is why Caiaphas spoke up in verse 49 and says, you know nothing. <laughs> you don't realise that it is better for you that one man die than for the people, than for the whole nation to perish. Let this one die and maybe we'll live. He is the unwitting mouthpiece of God declaring the gospel we believe, which is why in verse 51 he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for Jew and Gentile. And from that day on, they plotted to take his life. And they succeeded in taking his life, a life Jesus willingly gave up, for his death, ironically, gives life to all. Do you believe this? Tim Keller in New York City received the diagnosis of pancreatic cancer last year, which is one of the worst kinds. He's doing okay, but who knows, not long. Faced with his own mortality, he wrote an article in The Atlantic this week. You can Google it, Tim Keller, Facing Death, Atlantic, or go to the email we sent you on Friday, or my Facebook page if you're a friend of mine. 
It's a great article. And he wrote this about believing. He said, but as death, the last enemy became real to my heart in the, di the diagnosis of cancer, I realized that my beliefs would have to become just as real to my heart or I wouldn't be able to get through the day to live by believing. Theoretical ideas about God's love and the future resurrection had to become life-gripping truths or to be discarded as useless. May this word be a life-gripping truth to you. Or as John Dunn says, one more sleep past, we wake eternally and death shall be no more. Death, O oh death, thou shalt die. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Father, the power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us tonight. The power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you who believe. And so we believe this. Hoping against hope, we believe your promise. We believe in your word. We believe that you who had the power at a word to create the world has the power at a word to bring life to our dead bodies. We've been saying this for centuries because of the resurrection of Jesus. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.